0: Good morning, church. Our reading this morning is John 5, verse 1 to 30. I'll give you a moment to get there with me. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself, he can only do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming And has now come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, and come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me.
1: Well, I'm sure many of you remember that one of the great questions that we looked at uh, over the last three weeks is, how can a good God uh, allow so much uh, suffering in the world? And the passage we're looking at this morning raises this question for us again, doesn't it? Because uh, we're introduced here, and it centers around this man who'd been lame for 38 years. He probably, probably lost um, all hope of ever being cured. Um, how do we make sense of this? Where was God? Uh, at the same time, this, this passage also raises important questions about the relationship between religion and suffering, uh, and religion and hope. Uh, because I'm sure you noticed as the passage was being read that the day on which Jesus heals this man uh, was a Sabbath day. And it leads Jesus into considerable controversy uh, with the religious leaders around him. And so this morning, as we look at this account together, I wanted to to just see how it's teaching us three main things. I think it's teaching us, firstly, what is wrong with the world. It gives us a picture into what's wrong with the world. Secondly, why religion uh, won't fix it. And then finally, why Jesus can. Uh, What's wrong with the world, uh, why religion won't fix it, and why Jesus can. And so what's wrong with the world? Um, this I can't give us a picture of that. But let's think for a moment about the context. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus is up in Jerusalem for one of the great Jewish festivals. And while he's there, John tells us he chooses to, to visit the, this well-known pool, uh, the pool of Bethesda, uh, where, where John tells us that many um, sick and disabled and, um, people used to congregate. And I wonder if you notice, know John gives us considerable detail about this pool. It's near the sheep gate, he tells us, one of the, the big entrances into the city. And also, he says it was covered by five covered colonnades. And, you know, just as an aside, an, an interesting detail here this has um, puzzled commentators for a long time. And, you know, why would a pool have five colonnades or five porticos around it? You can imagine there being four, it's covered on each of the four sides, but why five? But, you know, interestingly, in archaeological digs uh, in the city of Jerusalem, especially from the 1960s onwards, have actually confirmed uh, the site of this pool and actually also explains the reason for for five colonnades. Because, in fact, it wasn't a single pool, but actually two uh, linked pools uh, separated by a colonnade in between. And I have a little picture here. This is from a, a scale model. Um, this is our best of idea of what it might look like. If you go and visit Jerusalem today in the Israel Museum, there's this beautiful big-scale model of the ancient city of Jerusalem. And that's of our best idea of what it looked like. You've got this of the two long joint colonnades on either side on, and then also a colonnade there in the middle. And interesting, you know, in, this, in the second century, uh, when the Roman emperor Hadrian rebuilt the city of Jerusalem after it had been destroyed uh, in the Jewish war... Uh, We know, um, again through archaeological digs, that he built a shrine uh, to to the Greek god Asclepius, the god of healing, uh, on this very site. And I think it's further evidence that this site was actually regarded as as a place of healing uh, in the ancient world. And so John gives us this account, and um, and he explains it to us. And amidst the crowds who are gathered here at this pool, hoping to be healed, uh, we're told here that Jesus fixes, fixes his attention on one man, Uh, perhaps choosing the one who had suffered longer than any of the others. And he asks him a very probing question there in verse 6. Do you want to get well? It seems like quite a needless question, doesn't it? Of course he wants to get well. That's why he's there. But, you know, I think it's also a very penetrating question. Uh, You can imagine that after 38 years, that his suffering had completely come to define him. Um, he was just a lay man. He couldn't think of his life apart from suffering. What would he actually do with his life uh, if he were made well? And interestingly, he never really answers this question. But you know his, his response reveals where his source of, of hope actually lies. And it's completely centered around this pool. Uh, you know, there was a popular belief and it might be reflected in the in the footnotes uh, of some of your Bibles. Um, that when the water of this pool was stirred or when the water bubbled up, many think that it probably was fed by an underground spring, there was this belief that the first person into the pool uh, would be healed. And this was this man's hope. Um, But he says to Jesus, every time I try to get in, um, someone else pushes ahead of me. There's always someone else who who gets in first. Can you imagine that? Uh, For 38 years, hoping in this, And it's quite a sad, but isn't it also an all too common picture uh, of our world? Not only do we suffer like this lame man, but we don't really care about the suffering of those around us. Uh, We'll push ahead and and we'll push others away in order to get ahead uh, ourselves. But you know, even more than that, I think Jesus' questioning here brings to light a deeper problem in this man. Uh, The way that he actually thinks about and the way that he views God himself. Uh, he thinks about God's power as at work in the world almost as a kind of impersonal force. Did you notice there's no mention of prayer in this man's life, no calling out to God? Uh, his only hope uh, is in this pool and in the hope that people might get him into this pool. Uh, I have no one to help me sort of get into this pool. That's his hope. And you know, if we see something uh, of this lame man's spiritual condition even before he's healed, Surprisingly, actually after he's healed, uh, even more of his spiritual condition is revealed. You know, what's so surprising about this account? I think there's several uh, surprising things. But one of the great surprises to me as I read it is that he's healed, but there's absolutely no indication of any word of thanks. Uh, There's no even word of praise to God for what's happened to him. He just sort of gets up and, and goes on his way. And when he's questioned by the religious leaders, who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Did you notice verse 13? He doesn't even know. He didn't even take the trouble to find out who it was who had healed him. And how tragic. But also, isn't it an apt picture so often of the world and of ourselves? Here this man is in the presence of the life giver, in the presence of the one who gave us our legs in the beginning. But he doesn't even recognize him. He doesn't even give thanks to him. And how often do we go through life and through the world enjoying all the benefits of life, our health and family and friendship and food, and we never even stop to give thanks to the giver. And how often when things go wrong, uh, when our health or something else is taken away from us, uh, when we feel our frailty and our mortality, how often do we think of little more than the mechanical cure, uh, more medicine, better technology? That's, that's all we really need. And you know, not that those things are bad things in themselves, they're often God given means, and uh, no doubt far more effective than this pool um, at healing at least our bodies. But how often does our brokenness actually lead us to reflect on our spiritual condition, on our thanklessness? Um, on our spiritual separation from God, you know Jesus actually has such a concern for this man who's healed. His, his body has been healed, but, but he needs more. that like, did you notice Jesus actually goes and seeks him out uh, and he finds him uh, in the temple. actually again, he would have with his condition, he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple. said he's, he's allowed in the temple now, but Jesus seeks him out. And he says something very striking in verse 14, "See, you are well again. Stop sinning." Or something worse may happen to you. Something worse, uh, worse than 38 years of being lame. Uh, Jesus puts his finger here on the man's ultimate spiritual problem: his sin, his his broken relationship with God. And uh, not that his lameness could necessarily be directly linked to a particular sin in his life. Uh, you know, Jesus makes that very clear in another Sabbath healing uh, in chapter nine, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. No, that's not the point. But you know, the suffering in the world can never be disconnected from our sin, uh, from our turning away from the God who made us, uh, that has brought death uh, into the world. This account reveals, firstly, um, our deepest problem, our spiritual condition, our putting ourselves ahead of others, our indifference, our thanklessness uh, to the God who made us. And so we see a picture here of the brokenness of the world, but secondly, I think we also see in this account why religion won't fix it. And what is the other shocking thing about this account? What's so shocking isn't, isn't it that instead of celebration of, of this great miracle that, that for any um, Jewish person should have heralded the Messianic age, you know that the prophets had spoken about an age when the lame will, will leap for joy, Isaiah 35 and so on, instead of that, what do we find? Um, we find accusation, we find fault-finding uh, from the religious leaders. Why is he walking around with his mat? And you know, In order to appreciate this, we really need to appreciate the, the way that first century Jews uh, thought about the Sabbath day. It was for them one of those all-important um, God-given markers that set them apart uh, from all the nations around them. Uh, They rested on the Sabbath day. Uh, They didn't work on the Sabbath day. It was so important because they believed that they could just just obey God's law perfectly. Well, that is the means by which the world would be set right. You know, there was one Jewish rabbi, uh, Rabbi Levi, who even said this. He said, if all of Israel were to keep Shabbat properly, for even a single day, the Messiah will come. Uh, That was their hope. And so they were incredibly serious um, about the Sabbath day. And as many of us are probably familiar, they drew up long lists of of what constituted work and what did not constitute work on the Sabbath day. Uh, One of those prohibitions on the Sabbath day was actually healing. Uh, Unless it was a life-threatening situation, uh, you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. Uh, Another one of those prominent ones was you were not allowed to carry an object from, from one domain to another domain. And it seems to be actually that prohibition, especially that's in view here with the man walking around um, Jerusalem with his mat. And you know, Jesus, of course, also uh, believed in the Sabbath. He believed that the Sabbath uh, was given by God. But you know where he differs from the religious leaders is actually his understanding of the ultimate purpose uh, of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Jesus says, is not about ensuring how in in ever more nuanced ways we make sure that we don't do any work. The Sabbath is about the restoration of human life. It's the flourishing of life as God originally intended it uh, in creation. Uh, In in another uh, controversy over the Sabbath, this is what Jesus says. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That was the purpose of the Sabbath. But you know, tragically, the kind of religious mindset often ends up hindering God's life-giving purposes. Um, it tends to view the law mechanically and impersonally. And, and as an end in itself, why are you carrying your mat uh, around on the Sabbath day? And you know, I think, if you think about it a little bit more, you'll, think, you'll actually realize that this sort of, attitude, this sort of the religious attitude of the only way the world is going to be set right is if we obey some kind of law, it actually exacerbates the problem in the world and actually creates huge tensions between people. Uh, Why is that? Well, because on the one hand, uh, if I think that I can keep the law, uh, if if I think that I'm keeping the law or me and my group are keeping the law, what actually leads me to look down on everyone who I regard as not keeping the law, Uh, these people are the problem with the world, these immoral people, these lawbreakers. And those who are suffering, well, they they probably deserve it. And it leads to incredible pride, uh, incredible division. But on the other hand, if I realize that I fall short of the law, well, it crushes me. Uh, Every time I fail, I'm always beating myself up, always realizing I'm not good enough. And I actually don't have any hope to actually be an agent uh, for good in the world. Uh, Religion, I think in the sense of an impersonal law code this passage is showing us is never actually going to to set the world right. It just creates more problems, more tensions in the world. But finally, I think this passage is also driving at why Jesus alone can fix uh, our deepest problems. Did you notice in this passage, I'm sure you did, the incredible claims that Jesus makes for himself. Uh, How does he justify his healing uh, on the Sabbath? Uh, They begin to persecute him, and verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. You know, there was a long-standing debate uh, amongst the Jewish rabbis about what did it mean in the creation account that God rested on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day? Did God himself observe the Sabbath? And you, you know most of them concluded that actually it couldn't mean that God doesn't do any work because they said, look, uh, children are still born on the Sabbath day. Um, God still gives life on the Sabbath and people still die on the Sabbath day. Uh, God still brings judgment. God must still be at work. And you know so most Jews would probably have agreed with the first half of Jesus' statement. God has always been at His work it's the second half that is is especially scandalous. And I, too, am working. They see the obvious implication of this. And verse 18, we see in their response, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. A Sabbath breaking was often a capital offense. They tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And you know, then in response to this, uh, we get sort of one of the longest sort of extended discussions. It was actually the first extended discussion of Jesus in John's Gospel. Unlike the other Gospels, as I was saying earlier, uh, John's Gospel gives us probably the most insight into Jesus' own heart and into Jesus' own self-understanding as he explains himself and the significance uh, of his actions. And he, he draws on a picture here that would have been very familiar uh, to an audience uh, in the first century. Uh, that of a son observing his father's trade uh, or business, whether it's carpentry or being a blacksmith, observing his father, learning from his father, and ultimately actually continuing uh, his father's work. And I think, aren't we even today still um, to, to a degree uh, familiar with that? Um, my father for most of his career uh, was in uh, uh, a computer software developer My brother and myself just sort of picked up that skill almost by osmosis, uh, as it were. My father gave us some projects in high school to do, uh, and it's really been my brother's career uh, since then. The son does what the father does. And that's what Jesus is saying about himself. Uh, God is my father. Very truly, I tell you, uh, he says, verse 19, the son can do nothing by himself. I'm not working independently here. He can do only what he sees his father doing, Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Uh, For the Father loves the Son and shows him uh, all he does. And you know, I want us just to draw attention to two great works of the Father that that Jesus pays particular um, attention to. Uh, The work of giving life, firstly, and then secondly, the work of judging the world. And we must just appreciate for a moment the degree to which Jews regarded this these as uniquely the work of God himself. Uh, Just hear these words for a moment from Deuteronomy, uh, where God is speaking through Moses. We have these famous words in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Uh, It's a word that's often used in the Bible to say that judgment ultimately belongs to God. No human being can judge. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, God says. Uh, A few verses later, Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 Uh, We have these words. God says through Moses, See now that I myself am He. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. And so you see what Jesus is claiming here. He's claiming to share that unique divine identity and that unique role. And because what does he go on to say, verse 21? For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. It's an incredible claim, isn't it? And at this point, we've just seen sort of a small picture um, of Jesus actually fulfilling uh, these great roles. You know, it's interesting when he says to, to the lame man, rise up and walk. It's actually the same verb that, that is used, that the Son of Man will actually raise up uh, the dead on the last day. And of course, his warning here to the man as, as well, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It's an anticipation of, of that final judgment and that role in judgment. You know, in closing, I just want us to reflect just for a moment on, on how unique Jesus is, how different he is uh, to any other religious leader, to any philosopher or sage or wise man who's ever lived. And we need to make up our mind about who is Jesus. Um, we can't just produce him to a great moral teacher. You know, This is how C.S. Lewis famously put it in Mere Christianity. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Uh, You must make your choice. Uh, What do you say about Jesus? Jesus. Um, and that's a question we ask so every Sunday, and it's a question each of us have to ask. And if you maybe have questions around this, or maybe around the historicity of Jesus, and um, please do come speak to myself or Sean or, or to Grant when he's back to any of the leaders. We'd love to help you think uh, that question through. Who is Jesus? But you know, for those of us who believe the Bible, who, who love the Bible, who, who want to obey the Bible, there's also a word of, for us here uh, in this passage. Because, you know, this is the position of the religious leaders um, to whom Jesus spoke. They loved the Bible. They loved the Scriptures. And near the end of this discussion, Jesus says something very striking and very challenging to them. Verse 39, this is what Jesus says. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You know, I think Jesus is saying that there's a way of studying the scriptures that ultimately turns it into a kind of religious performance. Uh, These are the commands um, that I have to obey, uh, or what are the commands that I have to obey in order to be acceptable before God? And you know, if that is your attitude, I obey, uh, therefore I am accepted, you're always going to be insecure. Because how will you ever know that you've obeyed enough? And you can never really know what is that verdict going to be on the last day when God judges the world. You can only try your best to to, to live up to God's law. You know, that is really the default mode of every religion, that, that here's the law that you need to obey to be accepted. But Jesus here, we need to see in closing, gives us a completely different way. Jesus says you can already know now what that verdict will be on the last day. You can already know now uh, that you are accepted before God. Uh, Just listen uh, to these words again in verse 24. Jesus says, and he introduces it with one of those very uh, solemn uh, declarations, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense, and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Aren't those incredible words? If you believe me, if you believe the one who sent me, you can know now in the present that you're right. Um, God, is, uh, You'll never come into judgment. How can that be? Isn't God going to judge the world? Well, yes, he is going to judge the world. But you know, the, the message of the gospel is that for those who trust Jesus, that that judgment has actually already taken place. Uh, This is why Jesus came. This is where Jesus' story is going. Uh, He came to live the perfect human life that we should all have lived. Uh, Ultimately, he came to die the death that we should have died, uh, taking the judgment of death for us, so that we can know in the present that we've crossed over from death to life. That is the good news. That is the gospel of Jesus. It's not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But I'm already accepted because of what Jesus has done for me. And therefore I obey and give us a completely different motivation for everything uh, that we do. You know, I want my children to perform. Uh, I want my children to do, to do the best uh, that they can in, in school, on the sport field. But you know, my love for them is never conditional on their performance. and uh, that would crush them. Um, I never at least in, in my heart, I never want to withdraw from them when they fail. I want them to know, and to know that they're already loved, and out of that, uh, to do the best that they can. If, and if I, who fail as a father, want to do that, how much more will the truly good father? Um, who, who, how much more will he show us that we are truly loved, and, and, and out of that, to live out a, a whole new identity. You know, when you when you really grasp this—that that, that you're loved in Jesus—it actually changes. Um, it changes two things. Uh, firstly, it humbles you out of your pride. No longer will you look down on, on anyone else. Uh, all those immoral people out there, they're the problem. No, because you know your own sin. You know, I'm so bad that the Son of God had to actually die to forgive me. And, but secondly, it also affirms you out of that self-consciousness, out of that, that self-pity for yourself. I'm no good. I've got nothing to offer. You're so loved. The Son of God loved you. He gave himself for you. Use what he's given you to serve his will. In Jesus here, in this account, the world is promised what we most need. It's promised rest, a restoration of how humanity. It was the purpose of the Sabbath. Uh, let's, as a community and as individuals, keep coming to him. Um, because it's as we come to him that we find that rest. Um, As St. Augustine put it so long ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Amen. Would we continue to find our rest in him? Would you please pray with me and ask that that would be true of us? Our Father, we do pray that you would search each one of our hearts this morning. Um, Please reveal to us where the religious attitude might still Have a hold on us, Father, where we might still think of our standing before you um, in terms of our obedience to your law. Where maybe that's made us critical of others or made us defensive, Father, would you reveal that to our own hearts? And Father, even more than that, would we see uh, the great love of your Son for us, your Son who is the life giver, uh, the one who can pronounce that even in the presence Uh, we have crossed over from death to life. Father, help us to enjoy this eternal life, which is a present reality, which will continue into eternity. And Father, would we go out with this life-giving message? Uh, Father, would we be transformed? Would we be humbled uh, out of our pride? But would we also be affirmed um, and know your love and be people who, who bring a life-giving message um, through our words and through our actions into the world, and we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.